0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Hype. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press.
1: Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Carcosin Egyptomania. Gum Arabic. Early 21st century science fiction films. And another round of UFO hoo-ha. Roar. What are you doing? I'm getting into character to play the new Plane
0: Gea 5e campaign setting. It's about dinosaurs! Well, technically it's
1: a prehistoric fantasy campaign setting, so not just about dinosaurs, but dinosaurs! I don't think you actually play as a dinosaur, but there are a ton of new kinships, subclasses, monsters... Factions, I guess it is possible. I'll just check through this massive 380 page plain Gia setting book and see. Well, okay. Oh wow, you totally can play as a dinosaur! Plain Gia is a prehistoric fantasy setting for 5e! It's a place of utter wildness where survival is the only law and must be carved from the world by a force of might and magic. Play a Saurian, with ancestral memories! Pick from a leather wing, hammer tail, sharp fang, or web foot. Rawr. Indeed, rawr. rawr! Discover a world of raw action, primordial horror, and mystic awe in Plain Gia for 5e. Nothing is as you expect in Plangea. Are shimmering dreamwalkers. Dwarves are half stone. Humans are beast tamers. Halflings are silent stalkers. Gnomes are filthy scavengers. And dragonborn are just a heartbeat away from their draconic ancestors. The campaign setting book, as well as accessories like the GM screen, adventure soundtrack, and deluxe boxed edition, are all available now from Atlas Games.
0: For more, use your tiny flailing arms to type in atlas-games.com/slash.
1: Plain Gia. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton welcoming us across the river of the Duat into the sunny western lands. Oh no, we were in the gaming hut, Robin, but now we're in an egyptomaniac gaming hut because those miniatures are mummies, those dice are all four-siders. Why, it's as if one of our beloved patriot backers, perhaps even Michael David Jr., has welcomed us into Egypt with a question. But not just Egypt. I think some of those Sphinxes are drinking absinthe. Ah, well, how better to forget being uh, schooled by a weirdo like Oedipus. But that's neither here nor there. It is, in fact, both there and there, because Michael points out France and Egypt have had ties since Napoleon. The Luxor obelisk was sent to Paris in 1833. Cairo even had its own bel with very Parisian-style architecture. How can you use this connection in a Yellow King game? He doesn't say Robin, but I'm going to say Robin. <laughs> I, I would be the expert to, to look all this up. So Egyptmania, Egyptoman,
0: as they called it, or Orientalism, as later scholars we call, call it.
1: Well, they called it that, too.
0: It just wasn't mean. Yeah, it wasn't, wasn't a, a bad thing at that time. It precedes Napoleon, but it's the Napoleon incident, as I'm sure Egypt doesn't call it, mm-hmm. that kicks it into high gear. So, masons are into Egypt before it is cool. Uh, so, this is why Mozart's Magic Flute, which is from 1791, is full of Egyptian symbolism because it's also Masonic symbolism. And the Masons who are into hermetic magic, some of them at least, they associate all this symbolism with being a free thinker, which of course is not what any of that ancient <laughs> Egyptian <laughs> symbolism was meant to symbolize, but there you go. So, for example, even uh, like a generation before Napoleon invades Egypt, a, a cousin to King Louis, uh, Philip d'Orleans, builds this pyramidal structure in parc in Paris, and it's it's somewhat a, a squished-looking kind of ragged pyramid thing, but it's still there, and it could very easily be a portal to Carcosa, possibly through the Western lands, we don't know. The baseline assumption in The Yellow King is that there aren't other competing supernatural or mythical forces and Carcosa, but rather that when Carcosa energy enters our world, all of these mythical and imaginary things start to take on a reality, and therefore they seem like, you know, if you run into Apis or Anubis or whatever, you you might think you're meeting an Egyptian god, but what you're meeting is sort of a projection of supernatural Carcosan energy. But again, anything involving Yellow King, it's a reality shift game, so you could decide to do that differently in, in your game. At any rate, the Napoleonic invasion of Egypt begins in 1798. Talleyrand thinks it's a great idea for France to invade Egypt because Egypt was part of the Roman Empire. End of story. That explains it. And so off Napoleon goes. Famously, he, you know, showed his respect for Egyptology by allowing his men to target shoot at the pyramids. The pyramids, I guess, were trying to sneak up on them or something. But also he brings a whole bunch of uh, scientists with them. 167 scientists, as
1: a matter of fact. Savants, they were called at the day. Yes,
0: a, a precise number. And they're supposed to go and support the military. But what they do when they arrive is they just get up to a whole bunch of science. Which, and Ken, I'm sure you can explain, the invading Egypt thing didn't work that well for, for Napoleon in the end.
1: Well, I mean, the the part of the goal that was not just because the Romans did it, was to basically break... The connection of the British Navy through the Mediterranean. I mean, even before the Suez Canal, they were using Egypt as a, as a way station on their way to India to sort of establish their trade routes to their, you know, Indian colonies. And Napoleon wanted to break that up. But the trouble with trying to disrupt British sea power in the Mediterranean is. You have to fight British sea power in the Mediterranean. So the French Navy was good enough for a surprise landing at the back end of everywhere, but it was not so good at keeping the British Navy from showing up and sinking the French Navy. So it did that at the Battle of Abukir Bay. The Navy that is supposed to bring the soldiers home is, you know, burning at the bottom of the Bay of Alexandria. This is a bad look. Napoleon sneaks home on a boat and leaves General Clabert to get uh, whipped by uh, the Turks a couple of years later. And that indeed is what happens. So there we are.
0: Right. But in the meantime, he brings all the savants and they get started uh, launching Egyptology as we know it, which involves uh, doing surveys and taking pictures and writing things down. And of course, taking all sorts of artifacts back home, particularly to Paris. And so once we flash forward to 1895, when the player characters are, are roaming around in the Paris part of uh, the Yellow King, when they want to go and see artifacts from ancient Egypt or talk to an Egyptologist, the place they go is the Louvre. So there's not this separation of fine art and archaeology that you might get in other cities. And uh, consequently, much later, that's why there's a giant glowing I.M. pyramid in front of the Louvre now that was built in 1988 It's a reference to the Egyptology department there. Um, also famously during, at this point, it was a French officer, Pierre-Francois Bouchard, who found the Rosetta Stone. It did not remain in French hands for very long, though. They had to turn it over as part of their capitulation in 1801. And, and of course, the Brits uh, took the stone and went, oh, this is the cultural patrimony. No, of course they didn't. They took it home and they put it in the British Museum. And that's where it is till this day. People, however, remain super excited about Egyptology and, and all things ancient Egypt. Josephine, Napoleon's empress, she decorates the Chateau de Malmaison with Egyptian inspired art. And things continued, decorations and signs of ancient Egypt begin to be uh, built and spread through Paris, which then, again, your occult and investigators can later go and interact with once they're activated by Karkos and energy. So in 1806, at the Place de Châtelet, which is a major public square, there's a Sphinx fountain. That is built and exists to this day, and you can see photographs of it. So when the investigators need to go talk to a sphinx, who will probably just talk in riddles, but you know you can use one of your investigative pushes to, uh, well, well, if the sphinx has information you need, it'll, it's comes you; it'll give you the information. Right. You need some other favor, you might need to use a push. But anyway, Sphinx Fountain. Right. Uh, in 1806, also another fountain on an egyptological theme: the Fontaine du Fella which refers to the Egyptian term for peasant. It says peasant, but he's a very heroic-looking figure with a pharaoh's headdress. And it turns out that statue, which you know holds a water jar and, and does fountain things, spills water, is based on a Roman statue of Antinius, who is a lover of Hadrian. So that could possibly create all sorts of
1: weird cultural
0: cross-references. That but might- Ant-
1: Antinius famously drowns in the Nile River. So, there we go. There you go. Makes sense.
0: And the biggest output of the savants who went to Egypt is a 20-volume scholarly work called Description of Egypt. It starts to come out in 1809. The last volume comes out in 1820. And that is, you know, in book form, the foundation of Egyptology, really. And also at this time, there's existing buildings. If you need a new porch on what will later become the German embassy, well, stick a cool Egyptian-style columns and stairs on it. That'll make it look cool. So there's elements of this this realm of fantastical mythology all around the city just waiting for you to interact with. The Rosetta Stone in 1822 comes back into the narrative. It's a French scholar, Jean-Francois Champollion, who deciphers the Rosetta Stone and figures out hieroglyphics. This, of course, is a huge advance in Egyptology. I don't know whether he
1: went to the British Museum or just looked I at I think he looked at the copies looked that at the were copies. in the description of Egypt, actually.
0: Yeah. And and at that point, he had not even been to Egypt. In 1836, the aforementioned obelisk of Luxor is installed at the Place de la Concorde. Uh, the original plan is to install two obelisks from Luxor. But it turns out, Ken, that obelisks are very heavy and difficult to transport. And took the first one it took them five years to get it from Egypt to Paris. So they just went, nah,
1: one's good. But until, I, I forget if it's the Mitterrand administration or the Macron administration, the other obelisk in Luxor was still technically the property of the French government. It had a little sticker on it. right? Yeah, and so if you're talking about magic twinning, that's what's going on. Is you've got one obelisk in Egypt and one obelisk in Paris, and they're you know setting up a magical nexus or ley line or some way that Carcosan energy can be channeling back and forth. It's fun that the obelisk is put up at the spot where the revolutionaries executed King Louis. And that is wild uh, when you go to the Plastic Concorde and you recognize that location. And uh that's a, I mean, you say Tim Powers is writing fiction. I say he's writing French urban planning. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
0: yeah, so it could be that, you know, some... Early advance party of Karkosans uh, showed up to make sure that that happened because uh, having kings killed off in your city, that's bad news for the, uh, for the king in yellow. He doesn't want that magical residue hanging around. You, you've got to dispel that. In 1880, the uh, French Institute of Oriental Archaeology is founded. Uh, it's actually in Cairo. It takes over uh, an Alawite palace there called the, the Monir. And uh, that becomes a base for their uh, archaeological operations. Uh, ever since, still in operation. And so this brings us to the Belopop period itself, which is really sort of a, a it, there's a bit of a lull in terms of new Egypty things happening in 1891. Uh, Sarah Bernhardt, who of course is a character that you uh, might go and meet. Uh, she plays Cleopatra, so it's still in the air a bit, but it's a bit of a, a down cycle. It's not going to be until the big discoveries start coming out of uh, Egypt in the 20s that that all gets revived again. And the heir to the Art Nouveau style that is prevalent in 1895 is Art Deco. And that is very influenced by ancient Egypt. In fact, there are some, you know, two and three thousand year old artifacts that you just look at and go, Oh, that's, that's Deco. Uh, right there. But at any rate, there's all sorts of Egypt hanging in the air for Carcassonne energy to sort of activate and, uh, and bring in.
1: Yeah. If your are um, painters are sort of avant-garde type painters in Paris in 1895, they probably see the old Orientalist school of symbolism of uh, Jerome being the great example, but there's lots of others who all painted like Egyptian locations, areas in the Ottoman Empire the fainting odalisque is a big thing. It's a woman in a veil who you can see only lasciviously. That might or might not be Casilda or Camilla, but that's not the question we're asking. But that is seen as sort of an older, outmoded style of art. So Egyptomania in 1895 is going to have a sort of, oh, my grandfather was into that type energy, not a this is new and current. And so much like Egypt does, I guess now, but also Egypt does feel in general a, a wind from the past. Egyptomania in Paris will also feel a win from the past. The great Belle Epoque architecture in Egypt doesn't really get kicking off until the turn of the century when a company builds a planned artistic suburb in Heliopolis and that sort of kick-starts the, the Egyptian Belle Epoque. That's in 1906. But the architect who will help design that neighborhood is in Paris in 1895. He's studying at the Beaux-Arts. Um, his name is Habib Eirut and he will be the Father of a dynasty of Egyptian architects. So he's there as a young man. He might be. Yeah. He's a, a fellow student to the investigator. Exactly. He's, he's yeah. So he, he would be, you know, the NPC who notices that Egypt is getting up to stuff. And everyone's like, well, that's Habib. He's just always talking about Egypt. But no, it turns out, sure enough, those obelisks were in fact Camilla and Casilda, the obelisks, different from an obelisk are um uh, uh thrumming with uh and energy now uh, if you go to cairo as part of your adventure the guy you will probably hook up with is a fellow named baron alphonse delord de la glion he is a civil engineer he basically does the uh canals and water system of alexandria that he moves to cairo and does it for them in between that he's also what establishes cairo's biggest chocolate company he's a uh, Got his finger in a lot of pies and making uh, 15% on all of them. Uh, Jerome, in fact, paints him in 1884. He's also painted by a Finnish artist a little closer to the end of his life. So he is a part of an art circle and he definitely patronizes architects, but it's mostly French architects who come to Cairo to build uh, sort of Second Empire stuff. It's not quite yet but, uh, full Belle Epoque, but... He does build the hugely successful Rue de Cairo, which is a giant Kyrene street that is, uh, set up as an exhibit at the Paris Exposition in 1889. So if, uh, there's stuff left over from the Rue de Cairo, that might be in some, uh, back rooms or some storage facilities. Uh, there might be old set dressings or sculptures or something, and they might be once more thrumming with lambent power. So. If you're making a Egypt connection, Baron Delord Lagleon is your guy.
0: Right. Oh, and I failed to mention there's also a Cairo Square in uh Paris which was built in 1799 in the second Arrondissement and uh it has an adjacent Cairo and Aboukir street as well. So that's a place that you might go when...
1: that's very big of them to have a whole street named after a crushing naval defeat. I think they named the street
0: before (laughs) the defeat is is the chronology there. (laughs) That's
1: hurtful. Yeah.
0: Oh, now Trafalgar Alley is going to feel sad. And so I guess our final question is, how do ancient Egyptian motifs overlap with Carcosa? Well, of course, masks are central to both. In Egyptian practice, uh, a mask was to anchor the spirit back into the body after death, which is why you had a mask on your mummy. They don't have a black lake of Hali, but they do have a lake of fire on which other later versions of hell were based. And the Egyptians, of course, were avid astronomers, and they knew the Hyades and Aldebaran, which might be planets uh, near to the planet of Carcosa, if Carcosa is a planet as well as a dimension, which, why not? Um, they were part of the Apis constellation, Apis the bull god, later known as Taurus. He's the son of Hathor, who's uh, sacrificed and reborn. And his image appears in some mummy masks. They're like a bull mask with a, a sort of a round uh, solar circle behind it that you might encounter uh, people wearing if they set up a cult that they think is, you know, just your ordinary run of the mill Masonic Egypt worshiping cult. But instead is, of course, uh, you know, just a front for Carcosa. Uh, the Golden Dawn couple in Paris, the, the Matherses, they evoked Egyptian rites. So their Moina Mathers is, uh, cosplaying Isis at this time. So that's another element that you can, you can go and draw from because, of course, the Egyptian Hermetic tradition has continued to
1: uh, percolate through occultism as well. So I think with all of that, there's more than enough in the Attic showroom, or even in Egypt itself, for the most degenerate crew of American artists to encounter. And once we have endangered American artists, I feel like the gaming hut will close up after them and leave only their faint, hungover cries to welcome us into a commercial. After a serpentine journey, the long-awaited scenario supplement for Cthulhu Confidential has shed its final skin to achieve full print form.
0: Yes, Even Death Can Die is now a
1: book filled with terror for one player and one GM. Featuring three scenarios apiece, starring the core book's iconic investigators. Chris Byvey's scholarly World
0: War II vet Langston Wright takes on corrupt businessmen and Nazi spies in One for
1: the Money. Struggles to expel an extraterrestrial passenger from his body in The Shadow Over Washington. And tangles with a traveling fire and brimstone evangelist in Preacher Man Blues. Ruth Tillman's straight-talking New York investigative journalist Vivian Sinclair tackles murder from a distance in The Howling. Fog goes deep underground as a strike roils a water tunnel project, and deeper things stir further below in Exastoria. And finds the creepy and crawly behind a gambling ship benefit Gala in boundary waters. And my LA
0: Hardboiled Detective Dex Raymond looks into a wave of rat attacks and a child's
1: disappearance, leading to The house up in the hills. Takes on a case for a legendary movie prop designer when Frankenstein's lab gear goes missing in high-voltage kill. And finds something terrible under a bed at the Revelstock Hotel in Skin and Teeth. Can you solve these cases with your hide and mind intact? Find out in Even Death Can Die, now available from your superior local game store. Or at the Pelgrane Press web store. Something's cooking,
0: something's bubbling, because uh, we are once more in our most unlikely of huts, the food hut. And this time around, the bubbling is a bubbling of carbonation, because the recent terrible conflict in the Sudan has thrown a light on a sort of a surprising fact about an everyday ingredient that is in a lot of different processed food, and also other products as well, that only exists in this small part of the world. There's uh, very few substitutes that work for it. And so we're going to look at the cultural history of gum Arabic, which is a substance that uh, all of the major food companies say they have enough supply of. But when you ask them, they say, yeah, we have five to six months of this. So this is a, a vital ingredient. It's in colas and other processed foods. And if you're a cocktail enthusiast and you get gum syrup that's what it's from so it's texture it's sort of creamy thick texture is what makes this
1: uh, an important ingredient for things and it also prevents the sugar from falling to the bottom of the bottle it's an emulsifier yes
0: (laughs) and in in colas it it prevents ingredients from uh, separating so it has all sorts of important chemical molecular properties and it's the product of the acacia tree, and it's not just, you know, there's other acacia trees, but there's a gum belt that extends around 500 miles from the east to the west of Africa. Uh, and it's where the arable land meets the desert. And this is where acacia trees can live, but also heat up enough that their bark begins to crack. And the sap comes out of it sort of as a foam, and then it sort of hardens into a sort of a fist-like crystal, or sometimes they look like eggs. And uh, this is literally the gum that we refer to when we talk about gumdrops. And this would just be ticking along as as an interesting, obscure little ingredient, except that, as we said, it's not getting to market because of the Sudan conflict. This, of course, is nowhere near the worst thing that's resulting from this terrible conflict, which briefly is a result of after a 2021 coup, there are two main armed groups the army and the paramilitary. And there's less difference between those two things than you might think because they're basically rival
1: warlords. They yeah. join, topple the regime. If you remember uh, Darfur way back in the day, it was the paramilitaries that were the sort of active participants in the massacre of the Darfur people. So yeah. that's the sort of roving gendarmerie and then the army's job in general. Was just to uh, keep the president in power, and then they decided to stop doing that in 2021. So here we are.
0: Right. And so the idea was that they would merge into one armed force that would also be controlled by a civilian government. And that's when it was supposed to happen in April, and that's when things broke down. Each side said the other attacked it. And then, of course, it's the civilians, as always, who really suffer enormously because a huge-scale conflict erupts in the middle of Khartoum. Imagine that happening in the middle of your city. And then both sides have taken to looting and occupying and persecuting the civilians. And it really looks like one of their main goals is to make sure there's no one left to be a civilian government to take over whoever, which of them wins or or doesn't. So that's the horrible background story that is resulting in this product not getting to market anymore. They're Of course, has been conflict in Sudan for a long time, but the main cities, the ports, have never been completely chaotically turned upside down to the extent that they have now.
1: Conflict was either in the west and Darfur, it was in the south against the now independent uh, South Sudan, and it was the now independent part of that that sort of began the process of turning the army against the RSF, because the army's old job was to fight in South Sudan, and now that they can't do that to get money spoiler alert many armies fight wars as a means of personal enrichment not for any other reason but that is what drove them into trying to sort of grab off the RSF's uh, share of business fundamentally
0: right and and the RSF is a paramilitary
1: right and and that that belt is now in not just Khartoum but it's in every other big city in Sudan because every city in Sudan is a potential looting ground at this point. So someone needs to move in and decide who gets to loot it. And that's where the civil war expands. So Khartoum has generally been a relatively safe, if horribly uh, totalitarian city, but now it is not. And Port Sudan on the Red Sea, which used to be the big export point for the gum Arabic itself has also fallen or fallen into chaos, not fallen to anyone who would actually run it.
0: Right. So under normal conditions, 70 to 80% of the gum Arabic comes from the Sudan and that's because they have the best quality stuff. There's other supply sources elsewhere, but they're greatly inferior. And, so- and also
1: many of them are having their own civil wars. If you look at a list of places that gum Arabic grows, it's like Northern Nigeria. Oops. Mali. Also, oops. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, Mauritania. Well, still, oops. So the, you know, the, the gum belt. Because it's that bottom of the Sahel is also the big fracture zone for Islamist terrorism and general state failure in that area, and so we're we're at a, a sort of a, a, a bad confluence where virtually every country in the Gum Belt is engaged in war. And when I say that Coca-Cola is desperately trying to get gum Arabic cultivation going in Uganda as their positive alternative, you will guess as to how badly the situation is developing in the rest of the gum Arabic belt.
0: Right. So under ordinary circumstances, the harvesters go to these trees, which I mentioned before the heat causes the bark to crack open and you wait until you have a nice big fist sized piece of gum Arabic, which you might uh, pull off a little bit of it and just eat it right there because it's Tasty. sugary, and a piece of it has enough calories to to last you a day. But anyway, it's it's harvested and then it's taken off to uh, a small city where it's auctioned off. Then they're taken to these very low tech processing facilities where basically they are dried, cleaned, and pounded into a, a powder. That's either they have these sort of long kind of knife like things that they use to to cut them up into a powder, then they're put in bags, and they're shipped off to distributors, to the companies who then resell it to the different manufacturers. And most notably, the thing that if gum arabic becomes unavailable for a while that you will notice just not on the shelves is cola drinks, because they keep the ingredients from separating, and also that sort of adhesive quality, that thick quality we're talking about, it leaves the cola on your tongue for a little while longer and is the thing that binds the flavor to your taste buds. And this, you would think, we tend to think all processed foods are just full of processed ingredients, but those processed ingredients are often processed from plants, this time a rare plant, and there's just not another synthetic equivalent or another plant that does the same thing.
1: Yeah, Coca-Cola buys it from these resellers. It doesn't go down to Sudan and source it itself, which is maybe part of the problem because the people who harvest the gum Arabic are on a subsistence farming basis like everybody in that stretch of Africa. So Coca-Cola is is always said, no, we don't source our gum Arabic from Sudan. That would be unethical. But, of course, they source it from a guy who sources it from Sudan. There's some Swiss company that basically acts as the middleman and and whitewashes it. Uh, Gum Arabic is also in low-fat ice cream, anything that you want to taste like cream that doesn't have it in it. Lots of sugar-free stuff, so you diabetics are not getting off free either. The honey-roasted nut often uses gum Arabic to make everything stick to it. And then it's also used in a boring uh, way uh, in cosmetics and paint and glue and other sort of industrial things that need to be a bit adherent or sticky. Right. And in those uses, there are other substitutes. But some there, of them are. Some of them, you know, yeah. there, there, there's other ways around making your paint stick. There is no other way around making your cola stick. Right.
0: It's gum arabic is in hard candies. And in that case, it We've been talking about how it it adheres, it also stops the hard candies from sticking to your teeth. So if you uh, start eating hard candies in a year and they're stuck to your teeth, you'll know what happened. It's also in marshmallows. It's high in fiber, strangely enough. So it's also used as an additive to increase the fiber content of cookies, baked goods, and cereal. So if you are buying a processed food product that says it's high in fiber, maybe that's because of a uh, gum Arabic. And on the completely other fancier end of food from processed foods, it's also, again, because of these unique chemical properties, a fixture of molecular gastronomy. So if you're one of these super fancy places that, you know, here's here's some lychee foam on your plate, you know, lick that up while it probably has some gum Arabic in
1: it. And gum Arabic goes back, it's been used in cooking in Europe since medieval times, which is where the name comes from. It was gum comma Arabic because it came from the Arabs the Europeans said. Good enough reason. And in fact, the previous great threat to the gum Arabic supply, or more technically to France's gum Arabic monopoly, caused France to invade and eventually conquer Mauritania. They, They started three wars over gum Arabic in 1825, 1855, and 1901. And that's why Mauritania finally became a colony of the French, is because the French just needed to keep that end, this was before the Sudan had sort of shaken out. There was a great deal of Mahdi uh, fighting off the Egyptians going on down then. But at the other end of the gum belt, Mauritania was sitting pretty as the big gum exporter. And that's why the French had to keep invading it because they kept threatening to sell it to non-French companies. Can you believe the effrontery?
0: Right. And of course, there's a long history of colonial conquest happening in order to secure access to food ingredients like spices, mm-hmm. which we've talked about previously. On the occult front, the acacia tree is associated with a fertility or healing goddess who does all the typical fertility and healing things. Gum Arabic is sold by New Agers as being good for spiritual grounding. So I guess, again, it's an emulsifier. Right,
1: yeah, it, it, keeps, your, it keeps your spiritual sugar from falling to the bottom. Yeah,
0: it keeps your spirit uh, adhering to your body. Mm-hmm. And to call back to the previous segment, the Egyptians used it for embalming as well. So it's a... A uh, important element in making new mummies, so that might begin to bring us possibly into the realm of uh, night's black agents, where there's some need the vampires have of uh, mummies, and so they're trying to uh, it, what the they used to be able to get just from a wholesaler. They may need to go to ridiculous black market measures to uh, acquire, and that might uh, be a strange thing that your agent uh, discovers that they're uh, up to. And it is also alleged to contain very small trace elements of dmt which is why it would be a a food that would bring you uh, closer to the gods but i don't think you know even if you're drinking 17 diet cokes a day i don't think you're going to uh, end up in the western lands or anything
1: not well i mean you will but not the regular way Uh, you're not going to end up in a visionary way in the western lens. let's leave it that way yeah um acacia is one of the things that they built uh the ark of the covenant out of in some traditions so it contains divine power literally it's like an insulator against divine power and in some cultures especially in nepal and tibet you burn acacia to drive demons away so maybe volatilized acacia bark which is to say gum arabic might be you know a good powder insufflator that you use against vampires or something in nice black agents we were talking about that so in addition to all of the other cult of the dead stuff going on in you know kush and uh lower egypt Or Upper Egypt, rather, you've also got a a possibility that gum arabic is is there part of it, and as you said, it was part of mummies. So there is that sort of notion of containing and collecting the spirit. So that's uh, a good thing for it to uh, involve itself in. And I I suppose that in a uh, Cthulhuoid sense, you might have some other kinds of plants that are springing up in all of this chaos and and brutality that are extruding a slightly different kind of a sap and one that maybe when you chew it you do go to not the western lands but you know Sharnoth, the home planet of nerothotep or somewhere who can say
0: right or it could be part of an experiment to grow acacia in uganda or elsewhere to to synthesize a replacement uh it's like well what else emulsifies Uh, kind of essence of shagath maybe yeah. that could replace it or this powder.
1: this this goo from shubnigorth could perhaps also do it it does so many things for us why mightn't it also make soda's tastier
0: right so next time you're uh, drinking a coke think about the even in normal times the incredible strange journey that is undertaken by this food product to uh, emulsify the drink you're drinking and uh, maybe uh, think about how uh, As a side effect of this, Coke may go up in price or just go away for a little while. But we're going to go away for a little while, but only the length of time to listen to this commercial. And then we'll be back with yet another segment.
1: The best of Askfigeln is now available at Drive RPG. All issues of Phoenix magazine since 2013. That's spelled
0: F-E-N-I-X.
1: Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory.
0: And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by
1: Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on drive DriveThru. Protect this podcast's rare ingredients by joining such intrepid Patreon backers as... Michael Manival! Monster Talk! Neil Dalton! Tom Abella! And Bill Sirwan! Robin, I have some bad news. The Cinema Hut, which has been... Bouncing along as a, a jewel theater, it hasn't been one screen since the '50s, but it's been two or maybe four screens. Well, we we can't go to the Cinema Hut anymore. We have to go to the AMC Cinema Hut 12 or the AMC Cinema Hut 16 or the Regal Cinema Hut 10 because as we come around the corner into the 21st century, the mergers and acquisitions have leveled the Cinema Hut and replaced it with one screen and a multiplex, but. Our tickets are still taken. The carpets are still dark and stain resistant. We once more settle into the center seats, the center aisle for the science fiction cinema essentials festival. And I know we all promised that we we're going to do the 21st century starting today. We still will, but we're going to start with the maybe the last great movie of the 20th century, The Iron Giant, an animated film by Brad Bird came out in 1999. And this is. A, uh, what do I want to say? It's a, it's about a boy, first of all, and he finds a giant alien robot, the titular Iron, Iron Giant, and they become best friends. And so it is Invaders from Mars plus ET equals the Iron Giant. And the reason that it is an essential, first of all, it launches the career of Brad Bird. Second of all, it is a almost perfect, maybe completely perfect children's animated science fiction film. Uh, Of which there are many, but only very, very few great ones. And also, it's got a really great voice cast. The the child actor, as in the way of many child actors, is didn't really go on to do anything else. But Jennifer Aniston is the mom, Harry Connick Jr. is the dad, and Vin Diesel does a terrific job as the Iron Giant—a mysterious baso profundo voice that says more than "I am Groot." And so, if you've ever thought did Vin Diesel ever amount to anything as a thespian? Well, his voice performance in The Iron Giant is terrific. There's real humanity in it. It's a touching, warm, and wonderful story, which I think is maybe why people sort of forget it or deprecate it a little bit, but I saw it as a grown-up, and I was sobbing my eyes out, and many, many people of the Iron Giant generation fixate on it on a t- as a touchstone in the way that their slightly older cohort do E.T., and I think that it it really accomplished everything that it's set to do. It's a beautiful graphic design, a beautiful piece of animated art. And uh, Brad Bird does a great job with the, the ability of animation to express joy and companionship in a way that really only uh, your Studio Ghibli's match. And, of course, there's a lot more Ghibli films that are great than Iron Giant. But it's, it's it's good to see Western animation be able to, post-Disney, stand up for itself. That's what I say.
0: Right. It's based on a children's book by Ted Hughes. And it has some creative DNA of the Pete Townsend stage musical about uh, the Iron Giant in it. The, the, the rights go through Pete Townsend
1: somehow. How wonderful.
0: <laughs> Next, I guess we're just going to quickly mention Pitch Black, which I missed at the time, just caught up with. I can't call it an essential because of some kind of central moments that fall flat or aren't fully dealt with, but it's a cool science fiction marooned on a planet dealing with monsters, figuring them out, using their smarts, and... Vin Diesel is on screen and therefore can't do a line So,
1: (laughs) But he has undeniable presence as uh, Riddick in Pitch Black, the sort of, not Superman, but Superman who will save people from these monsters. And it's also a nice use of an astronomical concept as a threat. The Terminator line as the planet goes from its day side to its night side is the visible threat marker in a way that you maybe get with vampire films. Yeah, it's a giant eclipse even. But you uh, seldom get them running across the landscape away from the Terminator, not the robot Terminator, the Terminator line, as you do in Pitch Black. There's a lot of very strong visuals in it. It is a fun watch, I would say, but I, I agree with you, Robin, that at the end of the day, it is just a above average science fiction monster movie, even though I do like the freshness of using actual astronomical concepts in it.
0: Next, we come to a, a real essential, although not when I thought to put on the list, so thanks for remembering it, Ken, because (laughs) it's in my mind more of a, again, a a cult cinema essential, but it's definitely a science fiction film as well. This is Kinji Fukusaku's Battle Royale. Fukusaku has a long history of uh, strange, mordant, disturbing films, and uh, this is a late career one for him. It adapts a uh, manga about a group of high school students who are going on a bus trip they're all gassed and they wake up with load your head collars on them and they have to uh, all duel to the death against each other on an isolated island for the entertainment of the uh, grown-ups who uh, loathe and fear all young people. And uh, sometimes uh, you're just by the luck of the draw. You get an opening weapon. Sometimes it's an Uzi and sometimes it's a pot lid. And... Uh, It's got this enormous, wicked sense of humor about it. It's got B. Takeshi Katano as the guy who explains all the rules to him. And at the time, this very effective cult exploitation film was seen as so disturbing that it didn't get a North American release for a while, and it was hard to find, and it was just considered beyond the pale. And of course... Almost all of its DNA winds up later in (laughs) a giant, super popular, novel-turned-movie franchise, uh, The the Hunger Games. So it shows you how quickly things go from from the fringe uh, to the center of culture.
1: Yeah, and it's, again, one of the, you know, Death Race 2000 model of if this goes on social science fiction, it posits a change to society, not necessarily a change to technology, but it is absolutely in that same DNA as... Death Race 2000, Rollerball, Running Man, and it's part of that stream of uh, science fictional, I don't want to say scabrousness, but certainly unkindness about the nature of uh, society and the nature of spectators who, you know, in their defense, they just showed up to watch a little movie, Kenji Fukusaku. Right. How dare you?
0: And in all the other versions of this, the contestants are sort of are willing in some way, and mm-hmm. this one, they're just... They're just kidnapped, stuck in an island. Right. But that makes it all the more disturbing. Next, we come to AI artificial intelligence, uh, Steven Spielberg's mounting of a script that was originally developed by Stanley Kubrick. And the script in the original version was by British science fiction writers Brian Aldiss and Ian Watson. And it's another twist on the Pinocchio story. This time, the Pinocchio is played with creepy non-humanness by Haley Joel Osment. He is supposedly the new generation of robots and the thing about him is he can love and be a little boy in a family and of course that goes awry and uh the mother played by francis o'connor just takes him and drops him off by the side of the road like you would a dog you don't want and he goes to the island of uh of robots basically and it's very effective uh very strange for a giant blockbuster sized movie uh at the time and has an interesting interplay between Kubrick's cold, clinical, cynical view of humankind and Spielberg's instinct and desire for sentimentality. And it makes for a surprisingly strong hybrid vigor combination of sensibilities that uh, you would think would not necessarily go together.
1: Yeah, as indeed I thought at the time, and that's why I didn't see it. So I'm glad to hear that the experiment worked out. Speaking of experiments, whether they worked out, I guess is a question for someone else to answer. But Richard Kelly's art indie film Donnie Darko, also from 2000, certainly had an influence on mopers, uh, whiners, and uh, saddies. <laughs> the uh, Jake- mopers need movies too. Ken. Jake Gyllenhaal plays the titular uh, Donnie. And his life is disrupted. It's another reality change movie. I'm not sure I would call it science fiction because mystic visions are not per se SF, but there we are. Well, it's ultra-terrestrial and time travel too. So. Yeah, it is that. There is a time-travel element. I will grant you that. I still think it's more of a fairy movie than it is a science fiction movie, but agree to disagree. We would also, I think, agree to disagree on its essentiality. I think that it is almost... I don't want to say it's an incoherent mess because the incoherence is on purpose and the mess is on purpose. But the trouble is, at the end of the day, it's still Donnie Darko and you're still not fond of anything that is happening or anyone that it is happening to. That doesn't make it not art, but it does make it hard to watch. And I think that and its marginality to the genre would make me say maybe not an essential. But Robin, I'm sure you have a different and more positive take.
0: Right. Well, first of all, I think it is... Uh, I think meant to appeal to a sort of person you don't like, it sounds like. (laughs) Well, but I'm not
1: anyway. Let's put it that way. I love all the people, as you know, Robin. It's obviously an extremely influential
0: film at the time. It sort of embodies a fusion of kind of indie cinema plus science fiction. As I said, very clearly, science fiction with ultra-terrestrial and time travel uh, and reality bending uh, elements to it. In a way, it is sort of a demonic rendering of Harvey, Mm -hmm. and that is interesting, too. And uh, a lot of people respond to it uh, quite deeply, and I think it does come together as neatly at the end as any uh, reality mind-torque film
1: does. And And I guess I should say that I saw the theatrical cut, there is a director's cut that Richard Kelly released later. And maybe that solves some of my problems. So with that it. might make all that the that might make all I the difference. Catch it later on, uh, on video. a movie that we sort of were on the bubble as to whether it's mentionable or essential. And I guess that means almost by definition, it's mentionable, uh-huh. but it's another Spielberg and it's minority report. So it's Spielberg doing Philip K. Dick speaking of sensibilities that do not mesh. It's Tom Cruise, of course is a, a cop. In a Washington, D.C., not a world, in which psychics can predict crime, and so the pre-crime bureau goes and arrests people before they commit crimes, this is clearly, you know, easily abused for totalitarian ends, and to both Dick's credit and Spielberg's credit, that's what the movie is about, is that inevitable, like minutes away abuse they've developed this thing and literally the first person to be in charge of it begins to abuse it horribly and that's the sort of tom cruise man in peril hitchcockian vibe that the rest of the movie is you know there's a lot of great stuff in it the the set decoration is great the sort of you know 10 minutes from now future is is interesting and fun spielberg does a great job with cruise i think they really vibed as actor and director but at the end of the day, it's a really dumb story with a crippling flaw in it, and I just could not say, "Oh, this is an essential thing," even though it gave us the the whippy uh, video wall that is now in every alleged serious spy movie. Even that, you know, sort of um, moving uh, data around in a in a holographic UX is came of age, I think, in Minority Report.
0: Yeah, Spielberg's got enough science fiction essentials; we don't need to give them another one. This is basically an interesting identity reality questioning uh, conspiracy film at the beginning with the soldier of the totalitarian regime turning against it or in this case having it turn against him but then my issue with this is simpler which is just partway through it just abandons all that to just be a series of brilliant but less interesting spielbergian uh, action set pieces a uh, film that i would consider a Essential, though, and it's a remake of another thing that I consider essential. Mm -hmm. This is uh, Steven Soderbergh's Solaris from uh, 2002. This recasts the uh, Stanislaw Lem movie primarily as a story of romantic longing and uh, grief. Uh, To re-encapsulate it, it's about an explorer who goes on a mission uh, in space to a space station around a strange, disruptive planet and that causes basically a tulpa of his late wife to show up. The previous Tarkovsky version is more about the thinkiness of space and the uh it's got it of course has that element and it's powerful, but this makes that the whole movie and it's the strength of Clooney's performance and Natasha McElhone who I think delivers her best performance of her career in this and uh the sort of quicksilver style of Steven Soderbergh his Visual inventiveness and flair for understatement—I think makes something that uh, really hit home for me.
1: Yeah, it's a—it's it's a great movie. It's a great Soderbergh movie. It's a science fiction. I—I I like it better than the, the Tarkovsky version, of course. I would, and it is. Uh, it, it's nice to see a, a science fiction story that, at the bottom of it, is about a fundamental human emotion. And that the, uh, the planet in many ways is a MacGuffin. It's the thing that gets everything going and, uh, sets up this, uh, this, this question about, about grief and memory and, and how long you hold on to somebody. Uh, and the planet is, is really in, in many ways, like the zone and in, yes. in stalker. It just exists to throw your own unresolved issues back at you.
0: Yeah. Cause if you're another member of the crew, like the man played by Viola Davis. Do you let your crew member take his tulpa wife back to earth with him? That's, that's a bit of a question.
1: Mm-hmm. Finally, we started with a sort of ET. We'll end with an ET. This is Koi Mil Gaya, an Indian film, a Bollywood film, even directed by Rakesh Roshan in 2003. It is technically the first movie in the Krish cycle, but those become superhero movies after that. And we are staying away from superhero movies for the most part in this essentials list. But The opener, the origin story, is that Hrithik Roshan, son of the director, a good actor in his own right, and one of the more impossibly beautiful human beings who ever exist, because the Bollywood star plays a a young man, he has a developmental disability, but an alien crashes, they name the alien Jadu, and the alien is able to sort of awaken his latent mental abilities and uh, bring him up. Uh, in a sort of a, a Flowers for Algernon way, and so he can express his love for Pretty Zinta, speaking of impossibly beautiful human beings. It's a Bollywood love story, so of course it has terrific songs and, and musical numbers, and then it's also a sports story, because guess what, Robin? There's fat, mean kids from across the lake who hate <laughs> Hrithik Roshan, and Jadu helps him win basketball, and of course the love of Pretty Zinta. So it's a good guys win E.T. It, it takes that E.T. DNA and sort of does a couple of interesting things with it. The Flowers for Algernon element that I talked about earlier, Riddik Roshan does it actually a very good job of sort of awakening up out of that previous state into a, a regularly developed state or superhumanly developed eventually. And then it's a, it's a fun sports story. It's a great love story. The trouble is that it is, I think, to Western audiences, unimaginably sappy and cloying an awful lot and so but you said Bollywood. And I, well, this is, even for Bollywood, it's a little triacly, I feel. And, of course, Indian audiences loved it. It was a gigantic hit. It spawned, as I say, two sequels and a superhero cycle. But it is the Bollywood version of the E.T. story, and it does bring some very interesting changes, and it is gorgeous to watch. But right. I cannot, in good conscience, say that it's essential. I just say it is mentionable as all heck. Right.
0: So, on paper, we have now gotten into the 21st century. but. As people know, decades don't actually line up with the way the odometer <laughs> shifts. And we've got some things here from 02 and 03, but really these are films that would have been largely in production before the thing that really started the change in the zeitgeist, which of course was 9-11. So uh, next week we'll be back to test to see if that shift to the global war on terror era infiltrates science fiction cinema or if science fiction cinema remains a uh, safe harbor from it Uh, but for the moment we've got another exciting commercial to listen to and then a perennial question
1: In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The
0: secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural
1: horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden.
0: Delta Green The Conspiracy is the sourcebook for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation
1: In Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring
0: top-secret eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a foreword by
1: Ray, plausibly deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu.
0: Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the nirvana of Nyarlatha
1: tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing.
0: It's so once more time to walk into that uh, most ill-defined of huts, the one where we're not really sure what's going on and exists on the boundary lines of crackpotism and psychic powers and the paranormal. But I look, oh, they're over in the corner, just next to the window where we can look out of the moor and hear the alien big cat screaming. The gray alien has his uh, non-ears perked up. Uh, he's not even touched his kombucha because he knows that we're going to talk about him again. And the the Nordic alien's kind of rolling his eyes, feeling sad for the era when he was hip and cool and was in the news. Because can every so often, I don't know whether it's every year, every two years, We get this question, this time posed by a beloved backer tenant Reed, which is the latest reports of UFO stuff coming up from the government. Oh, it seems like this might finally be the one. It may be the one. Ken, is the current wave of UFO hoo-ha the one?
1: No, it is not. It is exactly like all the other waves, except this time, David Charles Grush, the National Reconnaissance Office rep on the UAP task force, UAP was the old Pentagon name for UFOs, was the rep from 2019 to 2021. Then he moved over to the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency and stayed on the UAP task force, which I think is maybe a clue. And he then left in July 2022 because he filed a big whistleblower complaint saying he was retaliated against at work for saying we should reveal all the UFO stuff. He claims that he has seen documents that reveal a decades-long, quote, publicly unknown Cold War for recovered and exploited physical material, a competition with near-peer adversaries over the years to identify UAP crashes and landings and retrieve the material for exploitation reverse engineering to garner asymmetric national defense advantages. And I'd like to thank David Charles Grouch, not just for his service in Afghanistan, but also for giving me the back cover blurb for Moondust Men. Well done, (laughs) David Charles Grouch. I salute you. That's some wonderful bureaucratic military language there. Exactly. He goes on to say that there have been recovered fragments all the way up to fully crashed craft alien bodies. This has been going on for decades. He says the first one in this program was the UFO that crashed in Magenta, Italy in 1933 that was recovered by Benito Mussolini and Enrico Fermi and uh, the Vatican is who transferred it to the CIA after the war. And so that's why we got the leg up in the UFO races because we found Mussolini's UFO. Uh, He says some of the crafts are the size of football fields. Many of them have been turned over wholesale to defense contractors. We apparently have so many of these UFOs. We're just giving them the Lockheed and saying, see what you can do. He does say the UFOs are mean, that they are bad. Their malevolent actions are on the record. And he does say people have been killed, ye hints, by the government. Shock horror to cover up the truth he filed a real whistleblower complaint with a real lawyer. The real lawyer was the inspector general of the intelligence community for a while before becoming a white shoe lawyer. This lawyer has perhaps coincidentally left representing David Charles Grouch as David Charles Grouch has gone on increasingly crazy TV and radio shows to plug his story. But according to the debrief.org, a newsletter specializing in science the government won't tell you a former spook with the national air and space intelligence command which is the air force uh, successor to the old foreign technology directive and the uh, air technology intercept center at Wright Patterson that literally where they keep the aliens this guy's code name his work name is Jonathan Gray which i literally just stopped and <laughs> laughed out loud while reading. He says... He's always seen with the kombucha in his hand, again. He says that Grouch is for real. That the documents are real, that they match what he's heard. So, to break it down, we have a guy who is so into UFOs that when he switches agencies, he stays on the UFO Bureau. And a guy who won't give his real name says he's seen the same documents. But even that guy, he doesn't say he's seen aliens, he doesn't say he's seen saucers, he just says he's seen documents about Aliens and saucers, right? Because we both believe canon documents that oh, yeah. say those things. Yes, I think that that's incontrovertibly true. And the 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 polite version of this is that David Charles Grush is the current Benowitz, the current guy whose job is to seem like a true believer while promulgating all of this myth. Let us say, as opposed to Poppycock. So that the Russians and the Chinese will read it and go, oh my God, what if it's real and waste a lot of valuable time? And also that it provides plausible cover for whatever the next level of American drone or aircraft technology is so that when we test it out somewhere, people say, oh, it's one of those uh, UFOs like David Charles Grouch revealed, not, oh, that's the cool new American sixth generation fighter and I should take notes. So that play was run, I think, Almost incontrovertibly by the Air Force against the Russians in the late 80s with the Majestic 12 documents and with the, the modified limited hangout that went on for the late 80s and most of the, most of the early 90s was part of that Air Force counterintelligence program, uh, screw with the Russians program, and it seems to have worked a treat. I don't know that anyone who's gone into the old KGB archives has seen their big file on time we wasted on UFOs, but it definitely lit a fire under the Russians, and they started their own UFO investigation program at the very least. And now I assume, and again, this is the charitable version, that not just the Air Force is doing this, but the whole Pentagon, because the Pentagon's All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, one of my favorite names of anything, (laughs) is getting a grip on this. Uh, President Biden spun up an entirely different and perhaps pointless national security agency subcommittee on it, post-Chinese spy balloon. And so there is maybe a new urgency in the bureaucracy to try and mess with China. And this, I believe, the best case scenario is another attempt to mess with a peer competitor. The other version of the truth is that David Charles Grouch is a UFO guy. And UFO guys, they're not screened out (laughs) by the intelligence community. If the intelligence community screened for weirdos, Robin, there'd be no one left to to spy on people, right? And so, it'd be
0: easy enough yeah. for someone to see old disinformation documents and just believe them because you're predisposed right. to do so.
1: Yeah, I guess that's sort of the middle version of this is that he saw the old one and thought, Well, this program must still be going on. I'm going to volunteer to be the new Benowitz. And then the the final version is he's just a UFO nut. He just made it up. He's he's talking out his butt. He's totally sound on should America win wars, you know, no questioning his patriotism, but many patriots, perhaps some of them on this podcast, are also a little eager to believe nonsense. And so therefore, this happens.
0: Right. Because if I wanted to look at a target, you know, looking around the world to whose time can we waste? Also, you know, at a point where Russia is swirling ever more into Elliptony and paranoia, it seems like, you know, what the heck? Just dust off some old documents, throw them out there. See, you know, if
1: that ta- see if they bite again. Yeah.
0: If that takes one day's time out of somebody planning, you know, to get the last few trucks to the border of the Donbass. That's great, too. And uh, you never know who you're going to fool in a, you know, the, the Chinese government is also uh, built along paranoid lines. And
1: uh, I bet they also have their own UFO nuts and people who are predisposed to uh, believe. And, and of course, the downside is that, as you allude earlier, when you run an op on paranoid decision makers, the op also maybe catches members of your own intelligence community who, guess what, are paranoid decision makers. So, yeah, it might be that this is blowback from the old Benowitz op, That now a generation of X-Files kids has grown up and got security clearances, and here they are, dropping news with the debrief.org. Right.
0: Well, I think that uh, we can wait for another, I don't know, probably a year, year and a half, two years, and then the next thing that comes out that will suddenly seem to the uninitiated like it's possibly a thing will come along. But until uh, then, we'll have many more podcasts not about that, including one A mere week from today. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors: Atlas Games, Pelgrane Press, Aspagom, Ark Dream, Dork Tower, and Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as
1: always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at Patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep this podcast on
0: the right side of the Western Lands by joining such hieroglyphic backers as
1: Drew Clory, Alan McSager, Andrew Cowie, Bart Malio, and Neil Kaplan. Wear this show or. Drink it from a mug
0: with Ken Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin.
1: Show your heroic readiness to get on with the scenario with our latest design, Premise Acceptor. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And on Mastodon, he's RobinDLaws at Dice.Camp.
0: See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.